Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cheeseburger in Babylon. It's just me today, Isaac, and it's really hard talking alone. I'm holding a mic up to my face and looking at a ceiling. I don't know how all those streamers do it, so, you know, bear with me. I'm going to try and do it on my own. Uh, it feels more and more like Florida and my little hometown of Sarasota in particular is becoming the center of the world. Uh, so much national news is happening here and has happened here in the past. You know, I've talked about Sarasota's connection to 9-11 and the 2000 election and all these things, but uh, what happened recently has made national news and it is the right-wing hostile takeover of New College of Florida. I was there the other day at the board meeting where the president of the school resigned, the chair resigned. Uh, I mean, they're just making their way through it. It's hard to find a silver lining in it right now. Um, the one silver lining I did find is that Christopher Rufo, the Manhattan Institute goon who um, came up with the whole CRT thing, he's kind of Ron DeSantis's right-hand intellectual Rasputin-type figure right now. And so the first time I saw him in person, and he is a tiny man. I mean, he is very boyish. I'd say he's about 5'6". He's got this really weird comb-over going on. I mean, he's 38 years old, but he looks like the annoying kid in uh, high school who just, like, didn't care to make any friends. Just was, like, trolling before trolling was even a word, I guess. But I remember watching him get out of a van with all the other board of trustees and... Like, he had to hop out like a, a kid hopping out of a kid's minivan or a mom's minivan. So I guess the silver lining there is uh, he's not a happy man, I suppose. Um, other than that, <laughs> someone help me out. Someone help me figure out what what silver lining there is here and all the ha uh, going-ons in, in Florida. Another thing that made national news here, and it's what we're going to talk about a little bit on the podcast today with... Donna Davis. She is uh, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Tampa and a community organizer and activist and political consultant. Um, there was an attempt to reinstate a Confederate monument that was taken down uh, back in 2017. Uh, the vote didn't go through. There was kind of unanimous consent at the, uh, at the board meeting and by the public that nobody wanted this monument to go up, but the question is, like, what difference does it make, whether it goes up or comes down? I mean, this is all happening in the, in the shadow of uh, Tyree Nichols' murder. And Don and I will talk about this, that, you know, since, you know, more than 10 years ago now, uh, since all these organizations came to be to, to fight basically the lynching of, of black people by police, those numbers have not changed at all. So whether a statue comes up or comes down... Um, it's purely symbolic. It's it's kind of an empty gesture at this point. And so Donna and I talk about that. We talk about the, uh, the state of Black Lives Matter and what we can possibly do to fight what's coming at us right now. Um, I also want to say uh, or give a big thanks to Thomas Pryle. He's been our audio engineer for the past handful of episodes. So if the audio sounds good, it's because of him. If it sounds bad, it's because of me. Paradise. 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 
Donna, tell me how you got involved with Black Lives Matter. So actually, Isaac, it was an accident. Uh, someone wanted me to help a, a local organizer because they knew they'd heard what I was doing. I had just come here from New York City. I'm a, Flor a native Floridian, so I had no interest in doing any type of organizing mm -hmm. in Florida simply because I understand this animal and I know how chaotic it is and I know how redundant the work can be and how futile some Sisyphean um, the work can be. Um, so I didn't want to do it. Uh, they insisted. Um, we had a meeting one night at someone's what, house. What, what year was this, by the way? 2014. 2014. So this is right after, this is right after Ferguson, right? Right. And so actually, I had come here from Missouri. And I was in St. Louis, Missouri, when Michael Brown was killed. I had just finished a county executive race. Um, and I could literally see the smoke downtown from where I was living in Ladue, right? If you got to a high point, you could see the smoke coming from pe where people were protesting. Um, I believe I finished on the 5th, and then it was like the 14th or the 9th when Michael Brown happened. Um, I stayed a few more days in St. Louis. I decided not to go down to Ferguson. And the thing that people should know about uh, St. Louis, Missouri, is that the city is, has about a million people in it, and it's small. The county is huge. It's about five, seven times the size of the city, and it has 67 municipalities, 90, 93 municipalities and 67 law enforcement agencies. And so there were people in St. Louis County who didn't even know where Ferguson was. Well, because I was doing political organizing, I knew where it was, and I said, I'm not going to Ferguson. Because Ferguson, Ferguson is its own, has its, it's, it's a lot. So I, I just went straight to Tampa. I came to Tampa, Florida. Uh, from there, I worked on the Charlie Chris campaign, and after that was done, um, I started getting requests to get involved in other things. People don't really understand like the delineation between political organizing versus community organizing versus grassroots organizing, grass talks. It's a lot for some people to really understand, to apprehend. So I got involved in this. I was sitting around with some uh, younger people, and they said, I said, hey, why don't we just organize this under the BLM banner? It's really hot right now. It can get you a lot of attention and maybe we can get some justice for this girl. And so a page went up and then everyone flocked to the page because that was their piece of this movement locally. Um, and then it grew and grew and grew to about 15,000 people at its scene. Um, we began to organize our protests locally and to knit together some of the different groups that were working in the grassroots sector and BLM Tampa, the behemoth as it became known, uh, was born. How many members was uh, did, did Tampa Black Lives Matter have at its height? I would say um, active members, I would say about 500. That's still a lot. Um, and then we would get anywhere from that number to 10 times or more that number at a protest. I think that our largest protest had the, the Tampa Bay Times said 2,000 people, but if you saw the flyover of that, you know it was probably twice, at least twice that many people. And so I wanted to have you on the show this week because of uh, a Black Lives Matter-related issue that's happening uh, in Manatee County, where uh, a the Manatee County Commission voted to vote, you know, procedurally confusing, but they voted to vote on whether to reinstate the a Confederate monument that was taken down back in August of 2017 when we had that whole summer of monuments of Columbus and, and slave owners and Confederate monuments all coming down. And 
now they they backed out of this recently they they took it off the agenda probably because they knew it was a a, a hot button issue but it hasn't it's not going away officially they've they've delayed it um but still i thought it was a significant uh event that they would even re they would even consider reinstating a confederate monument and now it's it's gotten national attention uh i think people are still going to show up to the meeting which is uh, on tuesday uh the 31st of january not knowing that it was taken off the agenda uh but in general it seems like a, a huge step backwards uh culturally politically historically to to take it down a monument and then put it back up you know almost six years later so i I wonder what your thoughts are on something like this happening in 2023 so i have a few thoughts um my first thought is that you know in seeking to take down these monuments we started somewhere toward the end Um, instead of the beginning. When you have entrenched uh, systemic racism that has endured for literally hundreds of years, um, I think that you don't begin with taking down the symbols of all of that murder and theft and slavery. Jim Crow, um, a lot of dreams were stolen, lives were stolen. Um, People had their entire existence uh, co-opted and used by the capitalist machine. So when you think about that crime of humanity, and then you think about a statue, and I'll give you an example. When the organizers who decided that the most important thing that we had to do with about $300,000 in Tampa was to take down the Confederate monument, people didn't even know where the monument was, right? That's, this is the irony of this. People didn't know where the monument was, I'm a Black Lives Matter organizer. I'm studying intersectionality, you know, um, critical race theory. I don't know where this statue is because out of sight, out of mind, and where it was, it's de- where it is downtown. It's like sitting in a corner. What was the statue of? I don't even I remember. Can't re- I can't even. Re- I can't even remember what it was. I think it, it might have been a Robert E. Lee statue. Okay. Well, in any event, none of these organizers and activists even knew where it was. Uh-huh. Um, and here, this inanimate object that doesn't cause racism, which is actually a result of racism, that's still in place and still active and still bearing upon human life. And we decide to take $200,000 that could have really benefited a lot of the organizations that got involved and use that to move this statue to somewhere else. Meanwhile, we have a Confederate flag flying over I-75 and the, what is it? The Sons of Liberty have uh, a fence around it. There are cameras on it. So you can't, no one can, there's not gonna be any pole climbing, right? Uh, To take that flag down, not in Ron DeSantis, Florida. And people really felt that, felt convicted in their hearts. You know what I thought? I thought because people are unwilling to do the long-term in-depth work of dismantling systemic racism, uh, they were willing to go after these statues and flags. Now, do I think that that statue is, those statues are heritage? No. The reason why is because those statues, the vast majority of them uh, went up between 1890 and 1915, which was also the era where we codified uh, segregation, uh, it was the era of the Night Riders or the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. 
um, and Jim Crow laws, which codified segregation and the um, uh, debasement of black life and any other colored people in America. So those symbols went along with a period, post-Reconstruction period, where white America wanted to send a message to uh, people of color that you may be free, but you will not have all of the blessings of liberty afforded to people who were considered full persons in our founding charters. Right. That was the word. So when we when we look at history, um, these statues came after. They were artifact from actual institutionalized and systemic racism that endures to this day. So in my mind, it makes no sense to go after, to use resources, human and material, to go after the uh, symbols of racism as opposed to deconstructing the racism itself, to restore opportunity and dignity to Black life in America, to, in my mind, is the priority. I'm going to throw all my journalistic integrity out the window uh, by admitting that I was at the protest in 2017 in Manatee, you know, protesting to get them down. Um, and it, 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 and at the time, it felt significant. You know, it felt like the right, good thing to do. Um, you know, there were your counter-protesters waving Confederate flags. You know, there were Proud Boys back then before everyone knew what a Proud Boy was. And, you know, it was, it, it felt like a success. Like, it felt like progress. We were going somewhere. But what I found funny was we they took the statue down. It fell apart, which was also very funny uh, when they. I remember yeah. that it broke. And so the statue, yes. for those who don't know, is it's an obelisk with I think three names on it: uh, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and some other I don't know guy. If I forget who, but you know people who have zero association with the state of Florida itself. So of course the argument that it's Florida <laughs> heritage, not there. But it was an obelisk that just kind of stood there. And if you didn't go bother reading it, you didn't know what it was. Chances are, if you have a court date and you go there, you probably just pass it unknowingly, right? You're just, like you're saying, like people don't even know where it is. But it, it does exist, and it is, especially at the courthouse, the symbolism of having, you know, a Confederate monument at the courthouse, it's not lost on me. But the symbol of taking something down and replacing it with nothing. The local Black Lives Matter chapter here, when they got the statue taken down, or they were credited with taking getting the statue taken down, that was it. Like... There was no other, like, follow-through with it, it felt like. There was a symbolic victory, but then the, the, the platform on which it stood has just remained empty for almost six years, giving it the space for a symbolic return to the statue itself. And so I, I felt that way in the 2020 George Floyd protests as well locally, where I remember going to them and just being like, what is happening here beyond... Like this, the symbol. What what pe kids were getting out and marching, you know, in mass, but without any policy ideas in particular. And because of the decentralized nature of the protests, the person with the loudest voice, the most confidence, was like leading everybody around. And this one young kid, really passionate, and where he took charge of the Sarasota Black Lives Matter protest, and he began to like beg the cops to kneel with him and did this long like almost like pentecostal prayer to jesus and i remember being like this is weird this doesn't like this is missing something so like you were saying like resources being put in better places 
what resources could uh, anti-racist like getting rid of systemic racism what resources can we can we use so we do community education anti-racism classes um we work with young people we create clubs uh, for young people to learn about uh critical race theory uh black history um we go out of our way to have conversations with people that may not agree with us, not to just tell them to shut up or get in the back or nobody wants to hear what you have to say. We, racism is a white people problem. And so if we're not talking to white people and we're not listening to white people, and we're not eradicating the, the ideas and the feelings that move people in toward racism. Um, so what undergirds any type of zeitgeist is a feeling that I'm going to get something from this, or people who are taking things from me aren't going to get it, or this is my generational, the signature of my generational cohort. In order to penetrate that thinking, you have to have conversations. Ideas don't change unless there's discourse, which is why the public discourse around this was so important, but it was co-opted, like you said, by the loudest voices, not necessarily the most sane, not necessarily the most educated. This was the problem with BLM. And here you had many people who had never had the opportunity to lead, had never had any training in how to communicate with large groups of people, I mean, how to uh, communicate their ideas, and they had the microphone. And by gosh, you were gonna listen to them. So a lot of people use, and this is not un uncommon in most movements, where it's driven by volunteers, people just step into the breach and they begin to talk and they like the way it feels and their social media following starts to grow and you've got yourself a circus. So a lot of that did happen with BLM. Yeah. It, I hate to admit it. It, it, it happened very early on. Um, I, I remember the, my, the first face of BLM that I was familiar with was DeRay McKesson. And yes. Uh, he has since kind of faded from view, but he's still, I think, the most well-known name and face of the movement. And he has since garnered all kinds of criticism for, uh, first of all, taking credit for, I think, the uh, a decentralized movement. Um, right. And then, like, doing, like, weird pseudo-sponsorships with, like, Doritos. I don't... Wells Fargo. Yeah, it was. It became very. I mean, it, very clearly, with Deray, and then you had Sean White, and then what's happening with uh, the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Uh, you know, there are there are faces that are have have come under scrutiny for some of their behavior. It's almost this rise of this professional activist class mm -hmm. because of the amount of money uh, uh, moving through it, and so. Um, what what has been happening to to Black Lives Matter, especially since the George Floyd protests, but even as as far back as, as Ferguson? Like, are there? I, I'm always trying to find out or ask the question: Like, what did they accomplish, or what has been accomplished by Black Lives Matter since its inception in 2014? So, in some places, people um, change DAs. Um, we had, we did have a change um, in our DA. Um, in Tampa, uh, we got Andrew Warren, who actually did, you know, a lot to protect protesters from some of the harsher laws recently, um, which is one of the reasons why DeSantis took his job, um, if you've been following that. 
uh, we changed uh, police chiefs uh, during that time. And Viking While Black, um, where the Department of Justice investigated then chief, now mayor, uh, Jane Castor for flagrant racism uh, in the police department. So there were small victories, most of them at the local level. Um, so, and, and it depends on what the local chapters were doing. Um, I can't think of any uh, larger issues. I mean, we still have sovereign immunity. Um, we had the Supreme Court come and say that if an officer says they feared for their life, then they fear for their lives. And in the line of duty, that's totally acceptable um, uh, defense when one is uh, has murdered someone in the line of duty, armed or unarmed. Uh, so a lot of big losses. Uh, we were an anti-lynching corps, uh, much like the origins of the NAACP. So if you judge progress by the, what the mission was, which was to stop, we, we were rooted in being an anti-lynching corps, then we have failed spectacularly because the statistics have not changed at all. The number of black people that are killed by police is exactly the same as it was when we began this journey, um, starting with Dream Defenders in 2012 and 13. Not, not at the zenith of BLM uh, between 14 and 16. Here we are uh, almost 10 years later and we have made exactly no ground in that space. Now, if you wanna talk about culturally, um, I would say that we have certainly moved um, black culture and a desire for younger people to understand these issues um, into the public discourse in a very real way. Um, what that will yield, uh, we have yet to see. As the younger generations mature, um, as the, the people who were children uh, when this movement began, come of age, uh, we'll see how much of that took. Um, I do believe that long-term, um, the zeitgeist of those times will certainly have an impact on the minds and hearts that came of age uh, during the great unraveling, if you will. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you worry that Black Lives Matter is easily co-opted? Uh, because of its decentralized nature, and especially because, for instance, with the, the Confederate monuments, uh, it, it instead of it being material politics, it becomes symbolic uh, battles of the culture war. So, the, you know, the, the, the monuments themselves kind of get to be projections or avatars of the movement, uh, and it, instead of it being, yeah, like you were saying, like, anti-lynching activism. Uh, we're, we're speaking uh, in the wake of the Tyree Nichols murder. Uh, and when you see something like this, it, it is like, it's, it just hasn't stopped yet. So what are ways in which we can uh, work on a material level to, act, so to materially, not just symbolically, like you're saying, which is the end goal, but materially progress uh, the, I guess, the initial tenets of, of Black Lives Matter. Okay, so I think first we have to address Black Lives Matter in the context of what's happening around us. You know, what is the cultural um, staging of Black Lives Matter? Um, the erosion of democratic institutions, there are no longer democratic institutions in our society. 
right? Um, people become insta-famous because they had one thought. <laughs> one, they did one thing and you climb a pole, you're insta-famous. Um, you posted a, an idea or an opinion and it goes viral. You can get hundreds of thousands of followers overnight. Your video can be viewed 1.4 million times in 48 hours. You're insta-famous. And now you can monetize your platform. And that's what a lot of people um, are going for, not just in the Black Lives Matter movement, but on every politics, every sports, everywhere you look, you see this happening to people. Someone who would have been, who would have, Colin Kaepernick would have had a career that was mildly remarkable because he's a black quarterback, right? In an institution that traditionally hasn't had people in those positions. And so he would have had a semi-remarkable career and faded into obscurity by now. Um, instead, he becomes, he has a Wikipedia page that's going to say that he was uh, one of the heroes of Black Lives Matter. He made $100 million dollars holding out from the NFL <laughs> more money than he would have he, that's even a, that was, been able to That was to the concede. number? He's made $100 million? He made a hundred. He had a hundred million dollar contract with Nike, and so when everybody was advocating and they had this whole social media campaign to give Colin Kaepernick back his job, he had already inked a hundred million dollar deal with Nike. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us, no, no brain, still no brain damage signing a, a Nike check. You know, you also have to worry about nope. that. Um, no practices. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I feel like. One of the things that I th white liberal mainstream media can do is stop being afraid of uh, critical thinking in regards to Black Lives Matter. There are so few stories out there, I feel, that like examine it. And when, when, when you and I spoke a couple of years ago for the first time, you, you brought to light uh, aspects of Black Lives Matter that I wasn't familiar with that would become uh, parts of, a, I think, a, a New York Magazine story uh, talking about the like the mismanagement of finances uh, of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, I can't touch. It's a great story. That's like an award-winning story. But I was like, I'm a white guy. I can't touch that. And so how do white people stop being afraid of critically engaging with something like Black Lives Matter? So again, context, right? Uh, the context that Black Lives Matter was co-opted. Everything black people have ever done in the history <laughs> of their time on these shores has been co-opted yeah, by a white very, people that's a and very whiteness. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So let's just make sure that we're examining that in its proper context. From jazz to hip hop, um, now you see the the Asian invasion where they are totally co-opting um, everything about, including black sense. Um, so that's always been the case um, on every front, and probably for the foreseeable future, will continue to be the case. So, you know, once again, um, the context of corruption in something that is loosely held um, and purportedly a public asset held in the public trust by people who have no experience, who received no notoriety whatsoever prior to becoming the de facto leaders of a movement is a recipe for disaster. And when it became clear that the organizing was being done locally, it just wasn't a sensational story for the national news media. So they continued to assign the origins and the functions and the victories of this uh, of this movement, of all of these disparate factors. Um, they continued to uh, ascribe that to uh, a centralized uh, group and a small number of people. And that, to, the, to this day, continues to be the case 
um, none of the people who ran away with the spoon um, have suffered any more than uh, damage to their reputations. Um, they haven't taken any haircuts financially. Um, and um, most of them continue to make money uh, from their names and the reputation that they've called um, in popular culture. So they didn't suffer at all. On the other hand, you must know, there are activists who, were, who lost their lives. There were several people in St. Louis, Missouri who were found in cars, gunshot to the head, the car was burned. I mean, these are things that were in the media. They're not conspiracy theories. Um, and none of those individuals uh, got anything out of their very sincere effort uh, in the Black Liberation Movement. It's all very sad. Yeah, no, I was reading about, yeah, I think it, I think the number is up to six people who mysteriously died who were involved in the initial Ferguson protest movement. And you're right, there were two individuals who died in the precise same manner, found shot in a car, and the car was subsequently torched. And that's the other scary thing, too, I think, especially when activism is done through social media. It, so We have to remember who is actually pulling the levers of social media. You know, I... I not to give Elon Musk a single iota of credit, but the Twitter files are interesting in that it shows the ways in which uh, government and corporate America has influence over what we see. Like anytime I see a hashtag trending, I do not trust it ever. I, I think that, but then again, it's like, how do we continue to organize? It's, it's, we're, we're caught in this like unwinnable space where everything that's done online is subsequently a, like a fed you know there's that joke that every person you talk to online you never met in person is like probably a federal agent and but then at the same time like trying to reach as many people with a message and i, I think that it, it, these videos that cops end up having to release like the tyree nichols one there's a there's a reason why they didn't really they released it on a friday evening the same day right. the same day that the uh pelosi uh hammer tape was released because that stuff is still a mm -hmm. threat to – they clearly find that, that footage threatening to uh, the status mm -hmm. quo. So if we can't trust social media fully, what, what do we trust? Like where, where do we go to continue the movement without its potential co-option? So listen to this. The other day um, when Ron DeSantis decided that, that Florida has no use for – AP African American history. Uh, shortly thereafter, some of our um, uh, black black leaders um, decided to have an event in Tallahassee with uh, a popular attorney and uh, give fiery speeches um, about the value of uh, learning about black history uh, and black achievement in public schools, and they used a uh, flyer that had a shadow of a Black Lives Matter flag. Many of those people I know and have worked with, and not one time when invited did they ever attend any event that could have sullied their good names and ability to raise money for the, to draw down money from the nonprofit industrial complex uh, into their various causes, right? And impact their six figure plus salaries. Now, I am a high earner, so I don't, I don't have anything against people actually making money. I do have something against people exploiting a cause that they have not supported to gain more traction for their organizations 
and I saw that happening. So the first phase that we talked about was organizers, grassroots organizers who co-opted the movement and made themselves wealthy and famous. There's another wave of politicians uh, and people who are adjacent to them that are using the popularity of the Black liberation movement that endures to edify themselves and their organizations. Many of these people have either not done the things for our communities that they said they would do when we elected them, um, and many of them have attempted to do them, but in turn have actually exploited the causes for which they claim to stand for. So there's layers of co-optation um, and erasure that take place of grassroots leaders. So the question that you're asking is how do we uh, find each other uh, absent social media when we know that we can't really trust media writ large, right? Um, and what we're doing is, and I have thought about that for several years because I was kind of on a, uh, a sabbatical for two years. This work, this, this is death dealing work. It gets very dark and very heavy. And in order to maintain mental hygiene, you have to step back from the podium, you know, every so often. As any, any type of public facing job where you deal with some of the worst things that can happen to humans. Um, what we've done is we're asking all of the grassroots organizers that have been quiet, but very effective in their communities, their go-to people in their communities, they understand their communities, they understand the diverse uh, aspects and organizations in their communities, and they move through those spaces with ease, and they're effective because of that. We're asking those people to come into a convening um, in sometime in the spring that we haven't determined yet, uh, and come up with a 67 strategy plan uh, for the 2024 election. We realize that it would in normal in a normal state, <laughs> a normal state, geographic state, be an early start. But we realize that in a place like Florida, you simply cannot begin uh, to organize yourselves too early. Um, the Washington Post has said that the Democratic Party doesn't have a plan. I don't think we're thinking about that. The Democratic Party has been defunct in a lot of people under the age of 60 in their minds for many, many years. Um, no one is looking to the party to save us. The nonprofit industrial complex is not going to save us. The people that have co-opted the Black liberation movement have no intention of saving us. And so the grassroots organizers, the ones that I know that are actually doing the work, that are not controlled operatives, we're going to get into a room, we're going to come up with a plan, we're going to draw down funding from people who are not going to try to control the narrative as much as the normal channels coming through the nonprofit industrial complex and larger PACs, super PACs would and organize our state and take it back from the fascist. That's our plan. Like whether we'll be successful or not, I don't know. But if we don't try, then we have it's, no chance. It's a plan at least. Um, is it time to retire or reinvent the Black Lives Matter moniker? Um, when, when Biden was running against Trump, the whole Democratic 2020 uh platform was to run away from Black Lives Matter, right? I, there's that quote where Biden is saying that Trump actually uh, was doing more to abolish police than he was, talking about how he had removed some funds from from police, uh, from national police uh, coffers, and that, in fact, he had given more money. 
I set the record straight on that. I not only don't want to defund the police, I'm the one calling for $300 million more for local police, for community policing. I also think we should add uh, social workers and psychologists help police on 911 calls. The only person calling to defund the police is, is Donald Trump. Look at his budget. He calls for cutting police funding for local, state and local help by $400 million. Once again, he's pathological. To police. And the degree to which saying Black Lives Matter is just like a, a liberal shibboleth, it seems like, where people will just like put the sign in their window and not go any further. And then you have, on the other end of the culture war spectrum, the All Lives Matter. And so it... Does it have meaning still? I mean, is it time to to find a, a new thing to say that isn't so tainted with like culture, his cultural political history? It doesn't matter what you say. That's the same thing as taking down a statue. It only matters what you can get people to do, right? We figured that out when we registered fifty five thousand people to vote. One organization, right? In twenty eighteen and twenty sixteen, we registered. We, we turn in over 50,000. Some of those are not new registrations. We turn in over 50,000 voter registration cards. We lose an election by 10, 12,000 votes, enough to trigger a recount in the state of Florida. If all of the people that we registered go and vote, then we don't have this problem. So it doesn't follow that if you register, a person is registered to vote, that they will justly be motivated to actually go and vote, right? It's the same thing. People put these signs in Seminole Heights, uh, in this, this is the domain of most liberals in Tampa, right? And they put these signs in their door, in their windows, and they say, "We believe in science. Black that lives sign, matter. Yeah, Women's yeah. rights." Okay, <laughs> that sign. And those signs are all over Minneapolis. I do a lot of work in Minneapolis. Those signs are all over. Every single person in some of these huge houses in Minneapolis have these signs. But let me tell you why um, it doesn't matter what people are saying. White people make money. The, the literally the middle class, the top part of the middle class in America is held up by exploiting people of color, poor people of color. It is the bodegas in their communities, right? It's the public school systems. There's so many different ways that poor people are exploited. Uh, payday, payday lending, buy here, pay here car lots, their money, their small businesses, a lot of them are deriving their wealth from the poor people that they say they love and support. They exploit those people every day. Amscot, um, the Rent-A-Center, <laughs> you know, these little car lots that charge you 20% interest on your vehicle and then repossess it and sell it again and to keep the down payments. Though that's That money is going into the upper end, upper echelon of the middle class. Those same white people with those signs in their yard derive their wealth from laundromats, um, fast food restaurant franchisees. That's where they get their money from. So they're only going to go so far with black liberation. They're only going to go so far with supporting black businesses. They're only going to go so far with advocating for loans and, and the fair lending to people of color because it doesn't serve their purpose. It doesn't serve their purpose. At the end of the day, white people, the business of wealth building in white America begins with their ability to sell goods and services at exorbitant rates and interest to people of color. And that's why the black liberation movement is stuck 
And further, when we have people who come in and carpet bag, we're, st we're just stuck. It doesn't matter whether people are saying Black Lives Matter. It doesn't matter if Joe Biden is moving away from it. It only matters the extent to which white people are willing to give up something. And this, I mean, I won't tell you which, which political scholar said that you have to commit class suicide because I don't necessarily align with those ideas, but I did hear that. And I understand that most white people are not willing to do that. And so we're going to remain. Well, it, 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 that feels, yeah, that's tough because that feels pretty hopeless in that people as individuals will not give up their shit. I, it, okay, so listen, listen, no, hold on, hold on. Power concedes nothing without a, de a demand, right? White people are not going to just give it right. up. Right. Wealthy people that aren't white are not just going to give it up because it's not just whiteness is not your skin color. Whiteness is your thinking. Right. Whiteness is manifest destiny. Whiteness is colonization. Whiteness is co-opting spaces and appropriating things that you did not create for gain, for personal gain. That's what that's what whiteness is. So when I say white, that's what I mean. Whoever, whomever is doing it. I do not believe it is hopeless. I believe that when the demand is crystal and clear. And when the demand has real consequences attached to it, <laughs> then people are going to give up things. When people were in the street and the protests stopped being peaceful, that's when concessions started to be made because a demand has consequences attached to it. Asking, you can simply say no. They say, what's the worst you can do? You can ask, you can, they can simply say no. But when you place a demand, when a landlord places a, a letter on your door to rent, to pay rent or quit, that is a demand for a repossession of the premises. And if you don't respond to it, there are consequences. To this date, in the entire history of this country, and I'll stop here, there has not been a demand placed by oppressed people that has had real consequences attached to it. A general strike, perhaps? Something like right. that. When there are consequences for the wealthy, they respond until... Until we do that, there's not going to be a response. We're seeing that in France right now. It's very cool with the unions literally shutting power off to the politicians who are you yes. know, um, uh, applying these severe austerity measures on them. The problem in America is we do not have such a thing. They, we have systematically dismantled these, yes. these organizations of power to the point where we are so divided that – like, what are we supposed to do? And, and I see the exploitation of this uh, from from all angles, from all sides. I think that, you know, you have your Robert Robin D'Angelo's and their white fragility saying that white white whiteness is like congenital and that you can never give up. Like if you're born white, you'll 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 be evil till the day you die. Like that original kind of sin of whiteness. And I think that that that's helpful to professional activists and certain people who want to assuage their guilt without actually having to give up anything. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to give, I'll feel bad about myself, but I'm not going to give up any of my shit. You know, that, that seems, that seems right. to be the exchange right now with these kinds of right. efforts. Mm -hmm. And so again, like how, where, where do we go from there? Like how, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what, what, forms of power besides like maybe amazon unions i mean that's a that's a lot of people who could get together and organize and maybe shut shit down airline workers something but yeah so instead of protesting a, a, a monument going down or up 
like what is a better use of our time and, and resources? So as hyper-local as you can organize, now it took me a while to realize this because I told you uh, in the previous conversations that I have a problem with scale. Um, coming out of New York City, you know, I'm living in Brooklyn, there's 4 million people in my neighborhood. Um, I moved back to, um, I moved back to, I'm in Hillsborough County, I'm back in Florida, you know, it's um, a lot of miles. What do they say? It's a thousand square miles, square miles, right? And Hillsborough County, and there are only 1.25 million people in the Tampa Bay area. It doesn't include the Sun Coast, which is Sarasota. Um, and that's a lot smaller than what I became accustomed to and what I cut my teeth organizing uh, political and community in New York City. Um, so for me, it's difficult um, to show people their power when they're all spread out um, the way that they are. And a lot people are a lot more fearful uh, that their name and reputation, uh, they'll be blacklisted um, in a place like Tampa Bay than they are in a place like New York. You can move to the next borough. No one knows. <laughs> no one knows you, right? Um, and someone sent me an email last night. There's, there's this other thing that's connected to this is someone said, oh, um, I just want you to know that my church, I organized through my Bible-based church and um, I was glad to see someone from Equality Florida on one of our calls the other day because our Bible-based church doesn't normally organize with LGBTQ organizations. Don't forget that. We've got a lot of built-in division down here. In addition to white people needing to hold on to their wealth, uh, in addition to being um, trained and enculturated, not trained, enculturated, it's just ambient uh, growing up that white people are superior, smarter, just more capable in general, more, more thoughtful, more civilized. Uh, we all have been exposed to that our, our entire lives, that notion. Uh, when you combine that with people's unwillingness um, to give up potentially their livelihoods, uh, to be a part of the demand that is being made, and then you combine that with people who are co-opting the movement and asking for things like statues, inanimate objects to be taken down while people are literally being beat to death by the police, and it does look hopeless, but I do believe that the pain that people are feeling right now from the economy, um, from the runaway rents, their inability to own a home and stop being a victim of runaway rents, uh, the cost of daycare, people being unable to have families because they simply cannot make the money to afford it comfortably, um, that pain is going to force people to make a real demand on the establishment and on the wealthy. And I think you're going to see that in the next five years. You remember our conversation five years ago and the things that you saw between then and now, you look forward in five years. And if you're looking at all of the signs, uh, there's no way that the Generation Z that's coming of age right now is going to continue to take that haircut uh, and live like this. Eventually, the population will make a demand and they will say, you have forced us to the point where we have nothing more to lose. And so at that point, people will stand up for themselves and we'll look more like France and well, less like people that are self-interested. more like France and not like, you know, 1930s Germany. I, I think that's my greatest fear is the, the right is doing a lot better job developing populist talking points than the left is. I mean, Tucker... They're still outnumbered. They're still outnumbered, yes. Uh, 
but I, I, I still just see, I don't know, I, I hate making Nazi comparisons. I'm going to stop myself there because it's so outplayed. Okay, but. so let's do this then. Let's, let's do this. Let's look at Minneapolis. Who 15, 20 years ago would have thought that Minnesota, well, Minneapolis, would become a bastion of progressive ideas? They've elected a former educator as their governor. They've passed unprecedented funding uh, for education in that state. The, the Democrats have a supermajority in their state house. They have the trifecta. They have all of the branches. Um, they are uh, super blue. They're the super blue state. I do a lot of organizing in uh, Minnesota. I'm there every year for months. Um, and I can tell you that they simply just organize better. Once you reach it, it's like a critical mass. You get 10% of the population, you can get 20. You get 20%, you can get 30. We're struggling here to get 10% activated. At the point, with the any theory um, of organizing that that does number crunches numbers will tell you that you get that first 10% and you're on your way. It's just but a matter that, of time. We're struggling to keep 10% activated. That same 10% logic then be applied to the right wing and and the elements that they have and, and that's the thing where I, I see the success of or how the, the amorphousness of whiteness especially in the south right now in florida and in texas where you have people of color voting against their own interests and aligning themselves with fascism I see, I mean, like, well, the Cubans that come here are white, so, you know, whatever. But you still see, like, this Latino element uh, leaning hard into, you know, anti-communist uh, ideas. And so, yeah, I I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in Florida. I'm not in Minneapolis, so I'm, I'm, I'm biased about what's going on here. And if, if, if the future looks like Florida, we're kind of fucked. But I, I hope that's not the case. I hope it's it's limited. no. It can't be because what hap what's going to happen is with you make it seem like everybody that aligns themselves with I don't you're not making it seem like but just think about it like this everyone that aligns themselves with uh, far right ideology it's not going to be so easy to make your lived experience match up with what they're telling you you're still going to have student loans right because the majority of people don't mm -hmm. have money. Right, only 20% of Americans make over $100,000 a year, which is still not a lot of money, right? And so when your lived experience doesn't match up with being told that you're a master of the universe, the defection is not to the right, the defection is to the left. I, I hope that's true, because I, I feel like what the, what the right has to offer more than the left does is violent catharsis. I think that they give you a, a kind of permission to beat the shit, like literally hurt the other side. I mean, it, it is it is a sadistic ideology because fascism requires the annihilation of an enemy, right? And so, I, I yeah, my my fear is that yeah, you're you're gonna be pissing in a pot. You're gonna have nothing going for you, but at, at least you get to beat the shit out of someone who you don't like for some weird reason or other. I, I So, I, yeah, I, I hope that we can... So think about this. For 2,000 years, Europeans beat the shit out of each other. And then they stopped. Why? Why did they stop? 
Um, they got to beat up black people. <laughs> I mean, there are people, they still have neo, they, they have neo-fascists in Europe. But in, for, in general, when we wanted to go off into war, right, the patriot of American people, you don't find that in Europe. If you take off your hat and cry during the national anthem in Germany, they'll call you a neo-fascist. They'll be like, oh my goodness, what is wrong with this guy? So in large part, the people who invented beating the shit out of your, your fellows and pillaging and looting um, don't do that anymore. They colonized the planet. They beat the shit out of each other. And now they're telling the United States to mm -hmm. calm down. No need to go into Iraq and burn everything down and scorch the earth and destroy antiquities. You know, let's 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 let come let us reason together. Right. Um, so you see countries start on one end of the spectrum and move to the other end. They don't just keep beating each other to death forever. Europe could have fallen into the hands of fascists in World War II and never came back from that and ruled the world with their fascism. And they didn't, they didn't. And if that's the default setting for humans, that's where we'd be right now. The German army was lethal. They had superior mm -hmm. technology and they had captured the imaginations of not only their country, but people around the world. I mean, the Pope was riding mm -hmm. with the fascist. He was blessing the planes for Mussolini to invade North Africa. So that didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? It's the same reason that it won't happen here. Because that's not our default setting as I, I, humans, as bleak as it looks. There, I, I don't believe in any default setting of, of human beings. I, I, mm -hmm. I'm more optimistic right. than that. But uh, I mean, this is a whole other can of worms, and we don't have to get into it. But I you can edit it out. But I think that Europe did fall into fascism post World War II. It was just fascism under a different name. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States, I. In my mind, the Third Reich never ended. We're in the Fourth Reich right now. And considering the way that the United States clandestinely operated to undermine leftist communist movements all throughout Europe post-World War II that were leaning towards mm -hmm. communism, and like, it, while it might not be the outright fascism uh, of, of the Germans, like, it still like looks like it. It still is like an extension of it. I think that... And this is where, while currently Europeans are not beating the hell out of each other, I think that they're liable to start doing it at any minute. You know, I, I think that, and, and it, to bring things full circle, and 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 the the symbolism, the, the metaphors of monuments, uh, uh, and the concept of progress and time. Like, yes, it seemed like we were progressing towards something because we took down a monument, right? Uh, but in fact, it can go right back up. I feel the same way about violence amongst any group of people, no matter how similar or different they look, is that we are always liable to return, to go backwards in time in terms of our behavior. And I still think that, that uh, what, you're, what you're saying is true, that the only thing that matters is, is material, right? That is, is like actual material progress, making people's lives better, like in, in yes, in, in making their material conditions better. And I guess in Europe, mm -hmm. their material conditions did get a little bit better. But it's right now when you see what's happening in France, uh, in in uh, Denmark, in, in Holland, like you, you're seeing these these new austere measures uh, being uh, put in place, and the the immigrant populations of those countries are under threat of uh, annihilation because they got to blame somebody. I mean, France has become incredibly right wing. I mean, Marie Le Pen is like very close to taking power back. So. Le Pen is rough. Yeah. Le Pen is rough. 
right? That, she's she's rough. Um, um, but I feel like for every ten steps we go forward, we are going to take three and a half back. But we have never gone all the way back, and I don't believe that we will go all the way back. I believe that the pendulum swings. But as long as it doesn't come all the way back to the beginning, then our momentum is forward. And so I will be the first person to say that Black Lives Matter has not accomplished what I believe we originally set out to accomplish. I don't believe the NAACP set out to accomplish, you know, in the uh, early 1900s, what it set out to accomplish. Um, and today has been completely sold over, you know, to paid interests um, and actually worked against BLM at its zenith because they feared for its ability to raise money, um, if nothing more than to hold on to their salaries and position in their communities. And so over time, everything corrupts itself and has to begin anew. I think that's the same for our governments and our leaderships. Uh, leadership. I think that we're headed towards um, a, a great paradigm shift and all of the tumult that you see uh, going into this spinning vortex. Uh, we're going to come out on the other side and we're going to look very different. Um, we'll still have a lot of the same mechanisms. We'll still have oppression. Uh, we'll still have pain that we create for each other um, because of exploitation. Um, but as society evolves, I truly believe we'll get less and less of that apparatus functioning to oppress us. I believe that. I believe that because people will become come to understand. It's just like this. You go into a place like Jacksonville, and Jacksonville wants to become an international city, like Tampa, right? But they can't become an international city because they don't want anybody that doesn't look like a certain group of people to have any control or real power inside that apparatus. And so they don't understand, they keep on cutting off their nose to spite their face. It's the same thing with the fascists. It's the same thing with people like Donald Trump. You want a white country? You're never gonna have that. You didn't even set it up that way. You set this country up to be built and to exploit the resources of people of color so that you could sit back on your plantations and estates and enjoy a soft life. Those people are here and they're demanding their share of what their ancestors toiled for. You're never going to extract that from this nation. And if you do, it will make it will mark the nation's downfall. It's going to take some time for people to figure that out. And when they do, they're going to understand that a robust economy and a robust culture is diverse. It has color and texture and diversity in it. And that's our future. That's where we win. We win when we share. A cooperative society is a healthy society. We're pulling away from being a cooperative society and therein lies our problem. Well, Donna, I, I think that's a great note to end on. I always love ending on a positive note. And so uh, I wanna say, again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your time. And if there's anything that people can get involved with uh, that you that you do, is there either like a, do you have a Twitter account or a website or anything you wanna tell people to check out? Um, my Twitter is um, Political Jedi Four. Um, that's my Twitter. Uh, my rev my uh, Instagram account is Revolution with uh, three mm -hmm. V's uh, and an O H. Kind of <laughs> hard to. 
to spell that out for people. But it's better. Political Jedi 4 on Twitter uh, is best. And then if you want to follow me on Instagram, um, DM me over there and I will get you the link for that. But you guys, don't, don't stop uh, believing that we can do better. It's our duty to try to make the world better for future generations. And a true revolution, you heard me say, plants the seed of a tree who shaved the day. Just a small town girl. Living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going in. Just a city boy, born and raised in South Detroit. He took the midnight train.